football poop is doing. Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo here with Sam Monson. It's championship week and we're going to get into all the action and we're going to, of course, look forward to free agency and the key players around the league that teams just can't afford to let hit the open market. We're going to get all into it. But first, don't forget all first time depositors, a monkey knife fight to put at least $20 into their account while using the promo code PFF will receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. It's $40 of value for just 20 bucks, and you get the opportunity to turn that 20 into even more money playing daily fantasy and prop games at one of the fastest-growing fantasy sports sites in the U.S. It's Monkey Knife Fight. So go to Monkey Knife Fight, deposit your 20 bucks, use the promo code PFF, and then you receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's a no-brainer. Draft guide coming out very soon. Also, PFF Elite. When you subscribe using the promo code ACTION, you receive a year of elite subscription access and one year, that's 365 days, Sam, of Action Pro's subscription access for just the $199.99. Action Pro's Action Network's premium subscription offering tailor-made to make avid and new betters even better. This is a limited time offer that is currently only made available now through the Super Bowl. This offer only applies to first-time elite annual subscribers. All right, Sam, playoffs. Moving on, it's championship week. We'll we'll dive into the two games, and then we'll use ESPN's article, the most important players that just the biggest upcoming decision for all 32 teams. We'll hit on some of the biggest ones in the second half of the show. Let's start with the NFC championship, 3 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be snowy and cold, according to the forecast. Packers hosting the Bucks. What are you looking for in this one? We'll dive in deep in the rematch. Yeah, first NFC Championship game that Aaron Rodgers has ever hosted. That is crazy. Right? Right, yeah. Been to a few of them. First one he's actually hosted. Uh, And the snow, the cold, Green Bay, actual potential home field advantage in this year of no home field advantage. You know, it's, it's effectively eradicated this season over between COVID and no fans in the stands and everything else. Uh, This might actually be a legitimate one. There'll be presumably some fans there. There'll be cold, there'll be snow. This is an actual potential home field advantage, especially for or against a team like Tampa Bay. You know, warm weather, Tom Brady doesn't like the cold. Now he's going to go back there and experience it again. Yeah, Is he a Florida man? Look, we basically live in the South now. We're in Cincinnati, but we're like right on the border with Kentucky. And it gets pretty hot here. And when it's become 30 degrees out there in the last few weeks, like I'm... I'm from New England. Normally, 30 degrees shouldn't be a big issue for me, but it kind of feels feels a lot colder. Mm. feels like it's 10 degrees out there. I mean, so my body is acclimated to this uh, northern Kentucky weather here, Sam. I wonder how much that's happened with uh, Brady, who's going to probably be rocking his scuba suit. That's what he wears you know, when it's really <laughs> cold. Throws the scuba suit on there. Yeah. You know, is he going to be giving advice to the, uh, the warm weather folks? Everyone scuba there? up. Like Devin White. Devin White played at LSU. Now he's a buck. 
he's not ready for the 20 degree weather is he so you know the way like you know quarterbacks buy their offensive linemen like scooters and stuff brady's just gonna buy everyone a scuba suit scuba suit scuba yeah. suits for everybody for the nfc championship game 12 label yeah. on it what's your size anyway I, i'm looking forward to this game I, I think the big question aaron Rodgers answered it this week how much does the first matchup matter 38 to 10 and it wasn't just 38 to 10 it was 10 nothing packers yeah. and then the bucks went on a 38 nothing run of course do that math mm. and everything just looked different right Aaron Rodgers I don't want to say imploded but he just looked rattled right he just doesn't get rattled that often so I can't expect that to happen again but Rodgers said this week on the Pat McAfee show how much does that matter about as much as it matters that the Saints crush the Bucks at their place you know halfway through the season so my question for you does that previous game matter at all as we head into the championship game it matters to uh, to the extent that we've seen that happen between these two teams before there is in the the spectrum of possible outcomes of what could happen we at least know that that's on the table right there is a scenario by which Aaron Rodgers does implode throws a bunch of turnover worthy plays gets into a gets into it with Ndamukong Sue kind of loses himself can't deal with the blitz and the whole thing goes away from Green Bay we know that that's an option um but because it's happened once before it's probably not going to happen again uh, the even at the time that game was so weird in terms of the 10 nothing and then swing all the way the other way it felt like at the time this is a game where everything is just going the wrong way for green bay and that those games when though when they happen there's basically nothing you can do <clears throat> nothing you can do at the time but also like you can't really take anything from them like they don't they don't happen every time they're just weird confluences of events that all happen at the same time and you kind of throw them out and it felt at the time all right that was a weird game it was bad it looked awful for green bay but you probably have to throw that out in terms of what they're doing this season this isn't that wasn't them this was just something that happened that day um the thing though that was interesting was that argument he got into with Ndamukong and sue right yep. because sue is like that as a player in terms of antagonistic you know plays on the edge of dirty you know he's had some and he stepped over that line in the past multiple times but he got into it with Aaron Rodgers and usually I think when people start to sort of trash talk with Rodgers he likes it he, it's fun for him yeah and he plays better and just lights them up right something about the Sioux thing it went the other way and it got in his head and he became obsessed with that argument rather than like figuring out where the blitz was coming from and how to defeat it and it, it sort of distracted him and caused him issues and that became the sort of the story of that game like Sue's is going to be the same guy right he's not going yeah. away so if if you haven't figured out how to like tune that out and not pay attention to what Sue's doing and essentially ignore him you know there is a potential that Sue can get in Roger's head again and cause him some issues a couple numbers to just sum up what we saw in that week six matchup Aaron Rodgers completion percentage of 46 percent that was his worst since week 15 of 2014 and again that was the year where Rodgers was MVP he was spectacular he was almost perfect throughout the season until that one game against Buffalo late in the season that was also his lowest passer rating 35.4 lowest passer rating since that 2014 Buffalo game it was his lowest yards per attempt since uh, week 10 of 2019 turn of worthy plays he had three tied for most of the season of course he had a pick six and Rodgers only has like three pick sixes of his in his entire career um you know not only does he take care of the ball but he you know takes care of the ball and does give the defense opportunities to return it the the story was that the Bucks figured out the Packers right they blitzed 50 percent of the time highest blitz percentage that they had that uh, the Packers have seen all year 
They sacked him three times on the blitz. Rodgers only been sacked one other time on the blitz. So everything about this game does kind of feel like a one-off, right? Like the, like an anomaly. Um, so do the pa- do the Bucks go in and say, "All right, we gotta we gotta roll with the same with the same game plan here"? Because you, usually when you face a Rodgers level quarterback, you can't just go with an expected game plan because they they have answers. The, the, pa- the Packers have the ability to answer these questions. But yeah, and the other thing is that even even with that game included, Rodgers is really good at the stuff that worked. Yeah. So even if you were looking at it and saying, well, last time we did this, generally that is not the game plan to beat Aaron Rodgers. Like even including that game, Rodgers against the Blitz this season is a top 10 quarterback. You take that game out, PFF bingo, Rodgers is the best rated quarterback in the NFL against the Blitz, right? He, he's ahead of Baker Mayfield, ahead of Drew Brees, ahead of Mahomes. He's the best-graded quarterback in the NFL this season against the Blitz, that game aside. And even if you include that game where he was a train wreck, he's still a top-10-graded quarterback against the Blitz. So like, if you were coming into this week without the knowledge of what happened the last time, you would say, well, dialing up the Blitz is not the way to attack Aaron Rodgers. Clearly, he carves it up. He's too dangerous to do that. But you now have the, you have the evidence of saying that, well, if we blitzed him 50% of the time, it did work. Um, I think a part of it was they were dialing up the blitz in a very specific way a lot of the time. They were kind of attacking the motion that Green Bay had and blitzing off that. And again, this was, remember, this is week six, right? And week six of, I don't want to say it's a new offense because obviously Matt LaFleur was there last year, but it's all the things they're doing this year in terms of pre-snap motion and a lot of those sort of bunch formations and the, all the things we talked about previously in terms of free, easy, schematic wins to help receivers out, right? Like the Jalen Ramsey play. So instead of just being one-on-one, Devontae Adams against Jalen Ramsey, you put Adams in motion, you scheme him up, you get him free, right? You, you buy him an easy play that he doesn't have to win one-on-one. Same with Aaron Rodgers. All of those things are kind of new this year. They right. weren't doing a lot of them last year. So the first time they met... It was six weeks into doing this. Um, now, obviously, they're whatever it is, 18 weeks into doing this. They should have better answers if, even if a team decides to uh, attack them the same way and essentially blitz off that motion the way they did in week six. Yeah, and the answer is, I think, Devontae Adams, the guy that has a passer rating of 140 in, uh, in single coverage, 5.3 yards per route in single coverage. The Bucks game plan last week was, all right, Drew Brees torched us against zone the first time around. You know, the Buck. So it's funny because the Bucks are going from a game planning against the team that kind of had their number and they had to make adjustments, right? So they had to, they're like, we can't do the same thing we did in week nine against the Saints. We have to completely change. We got to play more press man. We have to get up there and be more aggressive defensively. They're in a spot now. It's kind of, it's kind of like the end of the game where you do you do you stay aggressive or do you play soft coverage when you're like when you're in control of the game where it feels like you've had success already. The Bucks have to figure out, do we roll with the same game plan defensively? And if we do, knowing they've prepped for this, or how much are we going to mix it up? How much are we going to play softer zone? And what is the answer going to be for the Bucks covering Devontae Adams? You know, with Jamel Dean and Carlton Davis on the outside, um, guys who have battled injuries this year, Sean Murphy bunting, what do they do to slow down Devontae Adams? Because even though the Packers do have other options with Alan Lazard and uh, Bob Tunyon and all that, it's still going to come down to big game. Rodgers is going to his guy, Devontae Adams, who's been just so dominant this entire season. 
Yeah, they the Tampa Bay defensive game plan, particularly in the secondary, is an interesting conundrum because we've said for a while that I think that group of defensive banks is best when you let them get physical and aggressive at the line of scrimmage and play more man coverage. But you now have to do that against Devontae Adams. Right. And if you miss, like one one miss jam at the line, he's five yards open. It's a slant that's going to the house. Like he is extremely dangerous against that kind of stuff. It's probably the last thing you want to do against him specifically, but it is probably what they do best. The other thing is, like Tampa Bay has now looked really good for a period of time, but let's not forget just how important the sort of the game flow of last week was in that that how that game panned out, right? The turnovers from from the Saints essentially gave the ball to the Bucks, right? They put them in good yeah. field position time after time after time, let them build this lead, and then then they're in business. But like if they if that doesn't happen this week, if the Packers instead of um you know turning the ball over and giving them free plays and free scores, if they actually get out to their own hot start and put up the same double digit point lead that they had the first time around like that's a that's a much more challenging place for this Bucks team to be chasing a game um, having to execute well in offense needing Tom Brady to have a clean game not a three turnover worthy play game like last week like Green Bay I think can put the Bucks under a lot of pressure quickly in a way the Saints weren't able to do yeah look I, th- I think both sides it's going to be fantastic I think staying on the the Bucks defensive side. I think you know, the linebackers were active. Devin White, Levante David. Um, even though it's funny because linebackers are one of those positions where, like, I think you only remember the the great plays. And Devin White's made a ton of them this year. He's also been out of position for a lot. He's been attacked in coverage at times. Those guys fly around the field. I think they're going to be key against you know the the backs out of the backfield because the Packers like to throw to Aaron Jones. They like to throw to their backs and whatever the Packers try to do from a run game perspective. That's the other component here. Todd Bowles' Bucks defenses have been excellent against the run for whatever that's worth. And the last, but the last time the Packers played in the snow, what did they do? They unleashed AJ, AJ Dillon. Dillon. It was AJ back. Dillon time in the snow. And Aaron Rodgers played a great game is against it, the Titans. Is it too late to nickname him the Snowplow? Can we get that started? It's, I think he earns it if he, you know, if he rush, rushes for a hundred this weekend. Okay. Um, so that'll be interesting as well, too, because we always talk about, look, it's it's balance on offense is just, you know, attacking what the defense is giving you, right? The Bucks defense stops the run extremely well. I think the Packers would make a mistake if they're like, well, it's snow time, bring out A.J. Dillon, run, run, pass, run, run, pass. I think that would be a mistake, even though it worked against the Titans pretty well on that Sunday night game in the snow. But just keep an eye on that because the, the Bucks, you know, that's strength against strength if they're if they do try to attack from a run game perspective. Particularly if Vita Vea returning is anything like the Vita Vea that got injured before, you know, before he went down. Like he was playing like at an all pro level for the first, what, five weeks of the season before he broke his ankle. He got hurt in the <clears throat> Packers game. Yeah, so, so five he was weeks, there early. Yeah. week six, he went down, but he was playing at like an all pro level at the point that he went down. If he's returned at that level, that like, that guy in the middle immediately shores up an awful lot on what was already a good defensive front. Vita Vea was fantastic before going down to injury. He had a 90.1 grade, only played 224 snaps so far this season. But um, maybe it was a hurt just before the Packers game. He's only played in five games. Did he play? No, he, he got hurt before the Packers game. Um, so they did that without him. But yeah, he's great against the run and he can 
push the pocket just a little bit, right? So um, he might he's supposed to come off injured reserve. I don't know if you're expecting him for 50 snaps a game, but even if it's a good 20 to 30 snaps that he can contribute here, that's extremely valuable as well. So, yeah. Um, so what else are you expecting here, Packers offense-wise? I mean, I think – well, let's talk Rodgers. We've talked a little bit about the legacy stuff and all that. It's his first time hosting an NFC Championship game. He has only been to one Super Bowl. Hasn't been to a Super Bowl since the 2010 season. It just feels like with all that's happened, he is just in the zone this year. I'm expecting him to come out and play well, right? Yeah. I mean, Rodgers has been – he's essentially been pretty phenomenal all season long outside of that Bucks game. Like – Deshaun Watson hasn't had a bad game, didn't have a bad game all season long. Went the full 16 regular season games without a stinker in there. Aaron Rodgers had the stinker, but it was one. And he had that one game that was just a nightmare. Um, it happened to be against this team that he's, he's repeating against. But outside of that, his baseline was the highest of any quarterback in the league. Uh, so I don't see any reason that would repeat. I mean, we said it's it felt at the time like a kind of freak game where everything was going south. I don't think it's going to happen the same way, at which point you have to like A, Green Bay, and B, Aaron Rodgers' ability to do the same thing against this defense that he's done against every other defense. Now, let's go back to let's – go, let's go to the other side of the ball. Bucks, uh, Brady, passing offense, again, going to be key. My question is, game plan-wise, we talked about this on Monday show, they ran the ball like crazy on early downs. And even though Leonard Fournette looks a tick better – than he has in the past from a vision and quickness standpoint. I don't think Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones are winning this game for the Bucs. So I thought that last week there might be an issue with, okay, it's Bruce, like Bruce Arians coaching history versus Sean Payton's coaching history. Bruce Arians is the type of guy, emotional game. He's going to, you know, throw the red flag at a time he's not supposed to just off emotion. Uh, he might see the snowflakes and, you know, decide, he's, well, we definitely can't throw the ball here. Like, that's what I want to like, – do they completely, you know, take the ball out of Brady's hands, which essentially they did. Um, and was it – did they do that last week because they hadn't had success throwing the ball against a really good Saints secondary? Um, or is it just the playoff strategy of the box when they, you know, start to get further into the uh, – closer to the Super Bowl. I think it's just what Bruce Arians does. Like, it's just, that's just his offense, right? And but it his... seemed like they had done a better job after the bye and down the stretch, um, throwing the ball on early downs, running more play action, running more stuff that Brady was comfortable with. Yeah, but he, here's the other thing, is that um, while it's, it's a, generally it's a bad thing for an offensive dude to run the ball in first and 10 because runs are just less efficient and you typically are putting your quarterback in a tougher spot on second and more importantly third down um but the bucks have like the highest average at the target in the nfl their offense is built to, to pick up 10 to 15 yards in a chunk that's what they're targeting essentially every pass attempt anyway so whereas there are other offenses out there where when they're facing third and 12 it's like a catastrophe There's, they just they almost don't have a play in there to pick up third and 12 like everything the bucks do is designed to pick up third and 12 anyway so i think they're actually unusually well suited to do what it is they're doing in terms of hamstringing themselves on third down um now where it becomes interesting is like if it is bad weather and the snow actually affects the passing game it also probably disproportionately affects the tampa bay passing game more than any other one because they do have one of the highest average depths of target in the nfl are they their top yeah 
only Jalen Hurts is a higher average at the target for the entirety of the season yeah i think drew Locke was in the mix i mean it's it's <clears throat> right, brady yeah. and a couple other guys with smaller samples yep. yeah brady's number one minus jalen hurts so they have like the highest average at the target in the nfl the so the ball is traveling further in the air longer than any other quarterback in the league if it's tough to throw because the weather's bad like it hurts them more than it hurts other teams so suddenly now they're reduced to like running the ball a lot and trying to warp the offense to a more um i guess brady centric short area higher percentage play and if you're trying to do that on the fly in the nfc championship game it feels like a, a tricky thing to execute it, well and you know last week that's what felt like was missing you know the, the bucks didn't have any rhythm offensively early on they had a third and three where they throw it down the field a third and one where they throw it down the field and it's like guys let Brady, you know, on third and three, let him throw a quick out. Let him throw a three-yard out. And it's not like you don't have the receivers to get open in that area. You've got Chris Godwin, and when Antonio Brown is healthy, he can certainly do that too, plus you get the tight ends. Uh, by the way, Cameron Brate's been like the most effective receiver out of all these guys, and I think that's what makes the Bucks so dangerous offensively. All these guys that they have to throw to. Antonio Brown's dealing with a knee injury, but even if he's out – we had Tyler Johnson come in making a great play on the on the back shoulder. Um, I think they should be using Scotty Miller even more. They didn't unleash Scotty Miller until late in the game, and before you know it, he's always in the mix making a big play, thirty-one yarder that flipped the field for the Bucks. So they have answers everywhere. Mike Evans did get shut down by Jair Alexander the same way he got shut down by Marshawn Lattimore essentially this entire season. So that'll be interesting as well because he's been a key to the offensive resurgence down in the second half of the season as well. I love it when the data says what you want it to say and backs up the point you're trying to make. What'd you find? On third and 11 plus, so third and long, uh, for the entirety of the season, including the playoffs, Tom Brady has the second highest av or yards per attempt figure. Only Matthew Stafford has a better yards per attempt figure than Tom Brady. He has completed 22 of 29 pass attempts on third and long. So essentially... All that running that the Bucks do on first down for any other team. That's unsustainable, man. Of course it's unsustainable. That's the problem. But my point is, in this offense, it's th this is what they're designed to do. The way that offense is set up, the, the things that they do generally, just out of the box as a cookie cutter, here's the play we're running, it's designed to attack that stuff. Like, that is where they live anyway. So when you're putting them, when you're putting yourself in a more disadvantageous position uh, in abstract terms it's not hurting this offense as much as it would hurt, you know, pick a team that's crappy at it, Baltimore. Yeah, I mean, if you have a better quarterback, yeah, you can get away with third and eight, third and 10, third and 11 more often. But this is the same thing we've criticized Seattle for, you know, for years, which is like, you can't just go run, run, pass, Russ, bail us out on right. third down. It runs out at some point. Brady's for not example, bail you out of third down every single time. But for example, Russell Wilson has a grade of 44 and a yards per attempt figure like half as much. Yeah, because they... You know, it regressed at yeah, some point after years of it being great. It but regressed. also, that passing attack isn't designed like that. Like, that passing attack is not consistently there to just target 15 yards downfield. They don't have the same hyper-aggressive, deep... Like, this is Bruce Arians' scheme, right? This is what everybody talks about. It's, it's the highest average at the target in the league. They go deep downfield. That's why everybody has 40 turnover-worthy plays in year one because you're just flinging the ball into deep coverage. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, if you're good at that, and Brady, you know, 40 turnover-worthy plays for everybody else in year one, 12 for Brady. So Brady is good at that. If you're good at that, you're not, as, you're not hurt as much as other teams when you're running the ball into a brick wall and facing third and 10. So the, the first time these guys played, the Bucks' offense wasn't on the field 
very much at all. I mean, it was really the, the Packers controlled the clock, so to speak, but there was the pick six. Um, there was some short fields that the Bucks took advantage of. Brady did throw the ball pretty efficiently, but they didn't need him uh, a, a ton. Uh, the other factor here, as much as we like to diminish the run game, the Packers are one of those teams. As we say, we'll talk about the uh, Bills-Chiefs game. They, the Packers like to invite the run. They're, they're encouraging you to run the ball, which is what the Saints did last week. So are the Packers going to invite the Bucks to run the ball again? Probably. Will the Bucks take the bait? I expect to. I expect it to. And if you're going to run the ball, Fournette and Ronald Jones, I think you have to at least average four and a half, five yards per carry to be efficient and make things a little bit easier. Um, at the same time, Brady is also one of the more efficient quarterbacks against light boxes, against six guys in the box. He's averaging seven yards per attempt, which is better than you normally would running the ball. So I think the Bucks have to dictate things offensively and find that balance. The one other thing that I think has a shot to be an issue in this game or a, a, a significant factor that we should talk about is um, earlier in the season, the Bucks lost Ali Marpet at left guard and the replacement was a catastrophe, right? Joe Haig allowed seven total pressures in the first start, which is the same amount as Marpet had allowed in like seven weeks before that. Um, and hit that switch alone was bad enough to essentially ruin the game that game and yep. then after that game it was like well we can't start Joe Haig anymore we've got to make shuffles on the offensive line Jensen's going to go out to guard uh Shipley was that who came in at center and we're, we're going to he retired right yeah we're going to move things around and and make two positions worse right so basically losing Marpet honestly was responsible for a lot of their like mid-season issues um Marpet's back but they lost right guard Alex Kappa and uh, Aaron Stinney was the guy that came in and played 72 snaps. Played okay. Um, but does that happen two weeks in a row? Like, can he still play okay the second time of asking? Or does the fact that he's Aaron Stinney and therefore a weak link probably come back to bite them at this point? It's and if it does, like, can it be like Kenny Clark he suddenly has to deal with, right? right. Or is Darius Smith moving inside on passing downs? This is a tall ask for a guy who, you know, doesn't exactly have a ton of pedigree. It's 2018 undrafted free agent. Can he hold up or does he have a Joe Haig potential to derail this thing all by himself? 116 career snaps for Stinney, 70 of which came last week against New Orleans. <laughs> yes. And, you know, he gave up a few pressures, had a penalty in there. Um, yeah, so expectations aren't extremely high for Stinney. And yeah, I think those matchups could be difficult. The other matchup to keep an eye on, Rashawn Gary, the guy, remember draft time, mm -hmm. podcast meme guy. I got to go back to our draft takes. We said, look, he's probably not a first round caliber player based off production, but he certainly is based off of tools. Rashawn Gary, since week 16, got to do this small sample size stuff. Since week 16, since the snow game against Tennessee, the highest graded edge defender in the NFL, that's Rashawn Gary right now. It's a three game sample size, but given his history of freak 280 pound athlete who has everything you're looking for from an athleticism standpoint who never really put it together from a production standpoint outside of a few plays he had some splash plays at michigan below average grading for the first you know 80 percent of his career year and a half year plus last three weeks he's been awesome so i think with a guy like that do you do you say is this a did they flip did he flip a switch and tap into his potential or is it just a random three-game run but keep an eye on Rashawn Gary and then Tristan Wirfs the right tackle he's been the best pass blocking offensive tackle among rookies one of the better rookies you know in the NFL and that's been huge you know like going back to draft time again 
the Bucks drafted for need, the thing we hate, right? Yeah. They said, we need help at safety, and we need a starting right tackle. But they got value players there. Tristan Wirfs at tackle, Antoine Winfield second round at safety. Both players have been instrumental in their success this year. In it, So I think from a draft standpoint, uh, the Bucks. The Bucks nailed it with Warfs, nailed it with Winfield, and it, and it did fit with what they needed to do in the short term as well. Yeah, it's always fun when a team does draft for need and actually gets it right. You know, like they, yeah. we desperately need to plug this one specific hole with this player in the first round, and then they nail it. And it, like, part of it is ah, that's great. That that fixes a lot of things. And then the other side of that is it potentially reinforces some really bad behavior. You know, it's kind of like. Uh, it's like training a puppy, Steve, that I'm dealing with right now. You don't want to you don't want to reward it at the wrong time because then you reinforce the bad behavior. Yeah. So you don't want to reward bad process by, you know, hitting a Tristan Wirfs pick out of the park because then all of a sudden you're going to do that every year, right? Just hey, we're just rolling the draft with one massive glaring hole we need to plug in the first round and rely on our ability to do that every time. It's not it's not good. I love that you've evolved from rugby analogies yeah, to puppy, puppy analogies puppy analogies yeah, that's good it's all about whatever's in your head at the time it just Steve. shows where you are in, in life right now buried under a, a mound of hell the uh off-air conversations that we have comparing your puppy training to my uh child training mm. you know it's uh child it's training. great that's what it is right we're training children <laughs> yeah i just think it's i'm not sure it's as uh, it's called racing them right usually, i'm not but sure it's as acceptable a term to use the reality is training for your, them for your you're, kids you're training them how yeah. to be humans everyone accepts that you know you train a puppy i'm not sure people accept the term training for kids all right the one the one last thing i want to mention about this game the packers secondary and i think i mentioned it last week with the rams if you're going to attack someone it's kevin king 55.3 regular season grade uh, he struggles in their zone concepts i think you know the the good route runners can can handle him pretty well i'd be interested if the packers try to match him up with mike evans a little bit more evans is more of a vertical threat and king can handle vertical threats a little bit better but if you get chris godwin Antonio Brown, if he plays, or any of the other Bucks receivers on Kevin King, I think it's an advantage. And then you could pair him to J.R. Alexander on the other side, one of the better corners in the entire NFL. And then the one last thing, the Bucks, I mean, the Packers doing a great job in that intermediate middle of the field with Darnell Savage, with Adrian Amos, a place that Brady loves to attack. You know, the Packers are going to force those outside the, the, uh, the numbers types of throws. I really think the Bucks' offense is going to come down to the same thing all year. Brady needs to make four or five big-time throws in this one. Well, yeah, he does, and he always does. The critical thing, I think, for them is the other side of that ledger. It's he needs to not make the bad throw. Yeah. Like, that, I think, is the real key. He had three – he matched Drew Brees for turnover-worthy plays last week. One was right? the drop fumble, which okay, wasn't really sure, – yeah. but matched but Drew Brees snap, yeah. for putting the ball in harm's way but had the benefit of his team making the takeaways and putting him in, in favorable positions. Plus, he actually offset them with some big throws that Drew right. Brees didn't, right? Brees had nothing. Um, Brady, like, Brady can't have that kind of game against Green Bay. The Packers are too good. If he has three turnover-worthy plays again, the Bucks don't win the game, they, like, unless he has some absurd volume of big plays. These two teams, though, overall, in terms of our data, are really evenly matched. Overall PFF ELO rankings, it's number three versus number four. Offense, it's number one versus number two. Uh, defense, it's number two versus number five. They come down really Bucks similarly. number two, by the way. Yes. And Packers five. But remember, Green Bay's defense has been playing better recently. Right. So it's yep. Bucks have a slight edge there, but the Packers, in terms of recency bias, are a lot closer than that. So these, 
like the the data says this is pretty razor thin. Uh, so it's Bucks uh, Packers by three is where the market is right now. We have a slight edge for the Packers here. I don't know if the I don't know how much the weather is going to be. Let's let's wrap it up with this for, before we make picks. You talked about Brady's legacy and the whole thing. We talked to Rogers' legacy. You mentioned Brady's legacy. This puts him into like Michael Jordan plus type of territory, right? Mm-hmm. If he can not just get to the Super Bowl, but of course win one. What are you expecting from Brady just from a performance standpoint this weekend? I think we'll probably get good Tom Brady. Um, I, I think everyone was everyone came out of last week saying that it looked like two 40-plus-year-old quarterbacks no, slugging it out. Absolutely and I, I don't think it did. I think Brady had a bad game which hadn't happened for a while, right? The, the turnover-worthy plays. Brady hadn't done that for a long time. So when it shows up, Brady, this season generally, Brady has timed his ugly performances for bad times in terms of all the eyes on him, prime time, right? Yep. He's had his worst games when the lights are on him, which, you know, if you're a narrative guy, you'd be like, well, this is Kirk Cousins, can't play on the big time. But it's Tom Brady, that's probably not true based off his previous career history, Right. At which point you probably just have to say he's been unlucky to have his worst games when everybody is watching. But my point is there's like there's now a a significant chunk of people that think that Brady is just a lot worse than he actually is because he's had bad games when everybody's watching. Top two graded quarterbacks, Aaron Rodgers, number one, Brady, number two. They've played each other two other times in their history. That's it. Well, three other times, um, including this year. So it's 2014 Patriots Packers, 2018 Patriots Packers and then the matchup earlier this year the this is the Super Bowl that you've been wanting for like 15 years I picked Patriots Packers yeah. Super Bowl for at least 10 straight years yes and was never right you're not getting this it, but you it. might get you got it, it you're it getting was, it in the uh, the NFC Championship. I was really game. picking Brady Rogers right uh, but the 2014 game is the game I'm kind of expecting and what happened there was Rogers was pristine Brady was excellent but like just a slightly worse and i'm not saying that's exactly what's i just think both quarterbacks are going to play well Mm -hmm. i think it's going to be one of those legendary types of matchups in the snow it's going to be memorable i'm leaning packers here to win i think they're the better all-around team and i think they're going to bounce back from that demoralizing 38 to 10 loss where are you going yeah the more i talk it out the more i think green bay are the team to be picking um i think they're just it's a cleaner team and I know that that last game happened and it went, it happened, you know, it was a huge win for Tampa Bay. But as I say, at the time it felt weird. Once you have that on tape for, for both teams to go back and analyze what went wrong, it feels very unlikely that the same thing is going to happen for Green Bay, at which point I just don't know that Tampa Bay are able to match them. One last thing. We had a YouTube commenter say, you've been talking about the Bucks having answers a lot, and mm-hmm. he, didn't, he, he didn't know what you meant specifically by that. What did you mean by that? Down the stretch, the Bucks have more answers now than they did earlier in the season. One of their biggest issues earlier in the year was when teams were able to pressure them or cause problems with their protections by the blitz. Um, so either winning one-on-one matchups with the offensive linemen or causing breakdowns in the protection packages that they had, regardless of how many people were into block. The Bucks, because of that Bruce Arians offense and deep down the field and Tom Brady being new to it, they didn't know where to go with the ball, right? So when Brady got pressured, it was a problem because all he had was either chuck it up deep and hope it comes down, yeah. which is usually not something he's going to do, or try and dump it off to a running back in the flat um, who's going to get buried. There's nowhere to go. They didn't have... Um, a good system of hot 
routes or hot reads. They didn't have sensible places to go with the football. So when pressure came, it was a much bigger problem. Since that point, they have started to develop answers. They've also gotten better with their protections. Like they understand better. Brady understands better how to call the protections in this offense to actually neutralize some of these blitzes. But now they've actually started to develop hot reads, right? Mike Evans, the Godwin, they, they receivers have patterns specifically designed for Brady to have an outlet that isn't a check down to a running back or a prayer deep down the field. They have mod- like those, the parts of the offense has modified towards figuring out that flaw that they had earlier in the season. So much on the line in this one, Packers Bucks. That's the first game on Sunday. And then the second one, the AFC championship, the Buffalo Bills, they're back at the Kansas City Chiefs. The big story, of course, is going to be Patrick Mahomes. It sounds like he's going to be fine. So we're just going to go. Well, whoa, it sounds like he'll play. He'll play. Hey, guys, life is full of questions. Like, what would happen to my family if something happened to me? Am I saving enough for retirement? And is now the right time to start thinking about life insurance? Just to name a few. No one should have to settle for answers to these life-altering questions that involve gray areas or leaving things to chance. And with Western and Southern, you won't have to. Backed by over 130 years of experience gathering insights, building strategies, and helping customers choose the right solutions, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. He, That's fine for me. Well, no, no, no. Because you see, the there was the concussion slash stinger slash nerve, whatever. That is probably going to be fine. But he also injured his toe, remember? Like before that point, he had yeah. dinged his toe up um, and was kind of limping around the place anyway. So I don't know if that is going to be 100%. And remember... And that's fine. He did start missing throws left and right after and that. And remember happened. last year when he was injured with, what was it, an ankle? And yeah. then hit his ribs. Like Mahomes for a period last season was not playing well. And then got healthy and went back to being Patrick Mahomes. So if Mahomes now, this week, is hobbled with turf toe, like that's a pretty significant injury for a quarterback who likes to move around and run around and scramble and... Well, and not just that, but, you know, throw off your foot. Like, your toe is kind of important in terms of just general biomechanics for throwing a football. You might know this, Steve, as a guy that used to throw things for a living. I do. Yeah. yeah. So if Need Mahomes... Full body. It's full body exercise. Here. There you go. Yeah. So if Mahomes does have an injured toe, that's significant. It is. The point I was trying to make is he's going to play. The head injury should be clear. Yes. Now the question is, okay, will the, will the toe injury hurt him from a throwing standpoint? Maybe a little bit. I, mean, I think you have you have time to, you know, tape it up and tape it up. You know, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. The first matchup though was was interesting, right? I mean, you had Allen had one of his worst games of the year. Mahomes was missing a bunch of throws early on. It was windy. It was the weather was Ugly rough. Weather. Yeah, and the Chiefs ran like crazy, you know, over the uh, on the Bills. And we've used this narrative all year that the Bills, they like to do that. They're inviting you to run. They're, they're, they want you to run the ball against them. Um, they're also not good at stopping the run, right? They're the second worst run defense grade in the entire NFL. Will the Chiefs take the bait here? You know, th- this, this is one of the big storylines we talk about in all of these big games, Sam. It seems like the smartest teams are saying, come on, please take the ball out of your quarterback's hands. And it's even more crucial this weekend as four of the top five graded PFF quarterbacks are still playing, including Allen and Mahomes here. 
Yeah, I do wonder, though, if the um, Mahomes injury changes that game plan a little bit because I would generally agree that I think... So I don't know... I think the general perception of the first game plan that Buffalo had is not the same as the sort of PFF um, interpretation of it, right? Generally, I think our interpretation of it was that's a smart thing to do, right? This is the best offense in the NFL. You're probably not going to stop them, so let's invite them to do the thing that's least efficient. Like, and they'll take it, apparently. Like, if you say, we're going to give you a light box all day long, six guys, you should run the ball because you have a favorable matchup. They apparently are all too happy to do that and rack up, you know, a couple hundred yards on the ground. But while you're doing that, you're not picking up nine, yard, nine, ten yards per pass attempt and carving you up through the air. So you're essentially ask you're inviting them and they're accepting the invitation to make themselves less efficient on offense. Um, so I think generally we would look at that and say that's not a bad thing to be doing. And yeah, let's do it again. It, Okay, you didn't win the game last time, but it was because, as you said, Josh Allen didn't have a particularly good game. If Josh Allen has his usual excellent game and you do that again to the Chiefs offense, you probably do win the second time of asking. So the the point of this strategy, though, so the first matchup, right? Clyde Edwards-Hilaire against six or fewer defenders in the box, right? And just for perspective here for people, the average box defenders is about seven, right? right? You have seven guys in the box. And the old school way of playing football is, okay, you bring the eighth guy down, and for the most part, most formations, you've got every gap covered, plus you have an unblocked defender to take on the running back. And that's how you stop the run historically. So when you have six or fewer defenders in the box, at best, the offense is going to have, at worst, they're going to have the five offensive linemen. They generally have a tight end or whatever, and it's even, and it's to the offense's advantage. That is the time when it's actually more effective to run the ball. Now, the key to this strategy, though, is to not give up 8.1 yards per carry as they did the first time, the Bills. Yeah. Edwards Alaire had 13 carries for 105 yards. That's 8.1 against six or fewer defenders in the box. So the strategy was fine. And the goal would be to like hold them to five yards per carry, not eight. Hold them to about five yards per carry for just, you know, simplistic terms. And that just takes the ball out of Mahomes' hands one extra time, one extra time, one extra time, which means that's one fewer huge play that Tyree Kill or Travis Kelsey can make. You know, that's the strategy. So I think the Bills didn't execute it perfectly because they gave up probably still more than you would like. But I, I use the same term I used last week, the race for 30. When you're playing the Chiefs, you have to try to get to 30 as much as possible. And I think your goal should be to keep that offense under 30 hmm. and – the more they hand the ball off, the more that's likely. So last time, Kansas City had 39 rush attempts against Buffalo. Do you know how many times they faced eight guys in the box? Three, four? Probably zero. Zero. No, not even, not, I'd say I figured it'd be like goal line runs nope, or something. Not yeah. once. They didn't have a single play where they had eight guys in the box. You know yep. how many times they had six or fewer guys in the box? 15 or 20. 15. Yeah. So 15 attempts with a, a really light box and not one with a heavy box. Like, they that was like it was a genuine concerted effort to do that right they completely invited kansas city to run the ball and the chiefs were only too happy to do that what intrigues me though is if mahomes comes out and on that toe is not the same guy right if he's slightly limited if he's not playing his usual you know laser pinpoint accuracy if he's not comfortable running around and making plays and all those kinds of things and this was your game plan like let's have light box 
drop everyone off into coverage, tell them to run the ball and hand it off and not, not attack us with the pass. But suddenly, Mahomes looks vulnerable. Do you adjust? Do you go after him? Do you cause him problems? Because remember the, the other interesting sort of blueprint throughout this season for causing Mahomes problems was the Raiders, who their front seven almost seemed to play like the entire front seven was a spy, right? So you kind of sit back, you wait till Mahomes does Mahomes things, which is start like running out of a clean pocket to make plays. And the second he breaks cover, all seven guys run after him and yeah. like converge on him, right? And when they did that, it caused him real issues. Because normally when he breaks contain and starts running off into the flat, there's like one guy chasing him down and Mahomes is just buying time until somebody uncovers and he hits him, right? When like the entire front seven essentially is acting as a spy, the second he broke contain, there was like four guys around him and he had to get rid of the ball quickly and it didn't go particularly well. So if again, if he's like hobbled and isn't 100% himself, the, the Bills have the speed on defense. Tremaine Edmonds, those safeties. Matt they Milano's, could yeah. right. They could execute that kind of game plan and you know put him under real pressure in the situations that he usually murders people in. Yeah, it's, it's a good call out because I think with Mahomes, so I didn't think that the, I don't think his mobility was affected that much last week. Well, that was like five minutes after injuring it. Like, what is it like a week later? Well, you tell me, doctor. This is, I've never injured my toe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Can you call your dad or something and yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, let's let's get him let's get him live. Get him live. Yeah, Doctor Monson, we need to figure out how much Mahomes is going to be hobbled here. So the strategy you're talking about with the Raiders too is just it's it's knowing the pass rush lanes, like knowing your lanes and kind of knowing. I, I think the teams that do it best, they have discipline with their pass rush lanes, and then they know where Mahomes is going to try to escape, and that's when they collapse on him right and that's when they try to make things a little bit more difficult so I think the Bills could employ that strategy and be smart it's also a different Bills team than it has been in previous years where their pass rush is just much deeper than it used to be we mentioned this last week too it used to just be Jerry Hughes and now Ed Oliver's done a pretty nice job I mean they've got not last they, week not last week I'm just saying overall yeah. run run defense wise Oliver's been rough I gave the scouting report a couple weeks ago it's been rough. He's been moved at the point of attack. He's not great. But with Oliver, Mario Addison's played well, Quentin Jefferson, all those guys, 30-plus pressures for all of them, they have the guys to maybe put a little bit of pressure, but it's different with Mahomes. You don't want to sell out because it's about pass rush lanes and it's about not letting him escape. But it's a good point. I think his mobility is going to be a key there. Um, I think from a Chiefs standpoint, though, strategically, it might look similar to last week against the Browns. The Bills like to play the too-high shell. They like to play you know quarters and cover two and cover six and all the softer zone type of coverages for for the most part and it's going to be the patience it's going to be Mahomes taking the underneath stuff Bills don't want to give up the big play so it's going to be Kelsey and Hill and whoever else underneath and Mahomes just has to make throw after throw after throw yeah um I, I do think this is a really intriguing matchup for that game plan reason it's interesting that both these games are matchups from earlier from earlier encounters in the season yep the one with the nfc one we talked about i don't envisage it playing out the same way almost at all this one could though obviously the weather is is probably going to be less of a factor this time around um but that is a real game plan i think that makes sense against kansas city the fact that mahomes is potentially not 100 percent adds a complicating factor to that and potentially forces you in a different direction or at least makes you prepare a contingency game plan right so that if you 
roll out there with the same thing and you see Mahomes visibly um, struggling compared to what he normally does, you can start dialing up some stuff that you've prepared rather than trying to implement it live in the game. But I think that's a very real uh, way of Buffalo doing exactly the same thing as before, which is, relatively speaking, slow down this Kansas City offense. Then the focus goes on the other side of the ball and Josh Allen. I was going to add one more matchup on that side of the ball, but good segue. Okay. Uh, just wanted to say Jerry Hughes versus Mike Remmers. Remmers is filled in pretty well for um, our boy Mitchell Schwartz due to injury. But, you know, Jerry Hughes playing really, really well. So just keep an eye on that matchup at right tackle. Now to Josh Allen on the other side of the ball. Got to take care of the ball. He did. By the way, he didn't play great against the Ravens last week. 60 PFF grade. So this whole like, um, that's why I was kind of laughing at like the Brady breeze. Hey, it's just a bunch of you know, old guys just look old and stuff. It's like Brady actually graded better than Josh Allen last week. It's not like Josh Allen isn't old. No, he just, no he's not. He just had a, a playoff game that wasn't as good as previous games. Yeah. That's all. Um, I think Allen's going to have to play a special game here. Um, the challenge with the Chiefs defense, the thing we've been harping on really for the last two years with their defensive coordinator Spags is discouraging passes beyond the line of scrimmage. So I think the Bills also have to play that patient game. And this is a game. This is something that Allen has gotten much better at the last couple of years, taking the under, underneath stuff and putting together 10 or 12 play drives instead of just hit, you know trying to hit a home run. So I think it's going to be both. It, it's going to be both quarterbacks. You know, they're going to drop back 40 plus times or whatever it is. Who's going to make fewer mistakes? Who's going to miss fewer throws? Who's just going to be more efficient? And Allen has shown that, you know, he can he can hang in that arena this year playing that game. Yeah, and they the Chiefs' defense was hyper-aggressive the last time they played. I guess I would say the weather was probably a part of that. Like, you know that the passing game is not going to be at its most efficient, so that's when you would dial up crazy pressure and yeah. blitz and all those kinds of things. So they blitzed um, Josh Allen 15 out of 31 dropbacks half essentially he was under pressure more than half of his dropbacks those are numbers that are like game over like you don't win games when that happens um i don't think again i don't think that will necessarily happen again they might come after him again because for some reason i was trying to work this out what teams blitz josh allen a lot still right even though over a pretty decent period of time now he has been one of the best quarterbacks in the nfl at carving up the blitz now, is that a lag factor of teams haven't yet caught up to the idea that he's progressed beyond that now and it's probably not the best thing to do? Or do you look at him and say, all right, like it's risky, but it's probably still the best thing to do against him? Like you might cause some issues, particularly less so a bad mistake and an interception. But if you blitz him, that's when you might get him to hold onto the ball yeah. and potentially fumble it away in the pocket and those kinds of things. So I can't work out whether the teams haven't figured out yet that he's, he's better than that now. Or if they still just think that that's the best way of attacking him and therefore are going to do it, even though he's he's currently ripping it to shreds. I, I think it's the natural tendency of defensive coordinators to assume veteran quarterback, you know, like Brady, Breeze, Rodgers, all those guys don't get Peyton. They didn't get blitzed a lot at all. You'd say, well, you got to pressure those guys, but don't blitz because you leave a hole, they're going to find it immediately. But usually but young it's, quarterbacks you attack. Yeah, but usually it's only once they've proved that they don't get they don't get beaten by it anymore like everybody as you say young quarterbacks get blitzed a ton right and then at some point the young quarterback proves that all right now he can handle the blitz and you stop doing it because that's a problem right if you blitz and they hit you 
it's a bigger play. So at some stage, teams then back off and they then you become the Rodgers, Brady, Breeze, Manning. And it's like, well, don't blitz those guys. They understand how to beat it. So have we just reached that point now where Josh Allen has crossed that threshold, but teams don't yet believe it? Or do you look at a guy like Allen or like Mahomes or whoever it is and say, whatever you do, you're going to lose. So let's be aggressive and hope we can create a turnover, and that's still the best thing to do. I think it's the second part. I mean, Mahomes crushes the blitz as much as anybody um, because of quick decision-making and guys that get open. You beat the blitz by having guys who get open quickly. And to me, that's the bottom line. Both of these teams have guys who get open quickly, right? I mean, they have the Bills we talked about all year. They've got one of the best receiving cores. We know that the Chiefs have probably the most dangerous receiver plus tight end combination in the NFL. That's how you beat the blitz, guys who get open quickly. Um, and you have in, in a scheme that's not making sure, you know, not having everybody run 15 yards down the field every single time. Um, I also think when you attack a Josh Allen, it's it's for contained purposes as well. You know, you know that a guy, when he breaks the pocket, he's really dangerous. If you do have that extra rusher, you know, it's riskier, but you can at least, you know, play your pass rush lanes, not let him get out of there. I want to see this. I want to see Tyron Matthew too. You know, he had the big interception last week. He's just that dude who makes plays all the time, right? In big games, if Allen does make one of those errant throws late over the middle or whatever it is, things that he's done throughout his career, could be could be Matthew picking it off. He play, lining up all over the place, 390 snaps at traditional free safety, about 600 in the box. He'll line up on the line of scrimmage. He lines up all over the place. So just, you know, keep an eye on him. Yeah, I mean... Every one of these games seems to come down to a weird turnover or a play that you can't predict. And those are the things that determine these games. And Tyron Matthew is unusually good at creating those. Like, always has been throughout his entire career. Just gets himself around the ball and causes problems. Since 2019, here's Matthew. 23 tackles for a loss or no gain. That's fourth. 10 interceptions, most among safeties since 20, uh, early 2019, beginning of 2019. Passer rating of 60 when targeted. That's third best. So, um, it's tough to... It's tough to make a consistent impact impact at safety because you know teams can avoid you. But Matthew, since his LSU days, has always been around the football. So I think that's one to keep an eye on as well. Um, by the way, at a macro level, all four teams here, four of the best offenses in the NFL, mm-hmm. we are going to spend all offseason telling teams to just stock up on receivers and corners. It's what we do. These teams are exempl- exemplify that. Well, other remember, than the Packers stocking up on receivers, but they have the best. Remember receiver. last year there was a big anti, um, anti-analytics anti movement because you could look at the playoff teams and be like, oh, all these teams are the best running teams in the NFL. What about the run game doesn't matter, analytics nerds? Yeah. And it was like, you know, people were using that as a stick to beat analytics with. This year it's like it's the opposite, right? And it probably just shows that, you know what, there's a hell of a lot of variance when you get to the playoffs and it's a single knockout tournament. But – now it's all the best passing attacks are the teams that are challenging to win the Super Bowl. The four out of the five best graded quarterbacks are the four remaining with a chance to go to and win the Super Bowl. Like this is the revenge of the analytics year where like the, the everybody wins based off how well you pass the ball and how well you stop the pass, particularly in 2020 when the passing game has never been more powerful because right. you know holding has been eradicated and all those kinds of things. And when you look at all the passing attacks, the Packers, they have Devontae Adams, and they've they've had secondary options emerge. The Bucks have as well-rounded of a receiving core as any in the league. The Bills have as well-rounded of a receiving core as any in the league, plus Stephon Diggs, top three to five receiver this year. And then the Chiefs, as we mentioned, with Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey. I mean, so this whole weekend is about 
playmakers making plays and finding ways to stop those guys. And I think in this one, the Bills defense has a history of doing a pretty good job here, but not so much this year of slowing down opposing passing attacks. And the Chiefs do a good job of at least avoiding big plays. I think that's where the Chiefs at least have the advantage to at least slow down the Bills passing attack in this one. Both these defenses, um, I think there's similarities between them though in that I don't think either of them is great but I think both of them are clever and good at scheming and good at um, game planning and taking away the one thing that you want to do and at least forcing you to something else. Yeah. And they're good enough to win every now and again, right? Whether it's a key third down, whether it's a specific drive and buy you a couple of drives, which for Kansas City was the difference between them losing in the AFC Championship game a couple of years ago and then winning a Super Bowl, right? It's that the defense went from being an a, a atrocity to being just good enough to win a few drives here and there. And when you have Mahomes in that offense, that's all you need. Buffalo is the same thing. Like they, their defense was just showing up at the key moment against Baltimore every single time. Like a third down, that's when Jerry Hughes would win a pass rush and get there. So I think both these defenses remind me a little bit of each other in that regard. Don't forget too, you know, Buffalo gave up three points last week. There was also... Like, Tredavious got whooped on that one right. route. I mean, it's wide open. Tyler Huntley misses the throw. You can't have those types of breakdowns with Buffalo. Um, per PFF and PFF ELO, the NFL got it right. This game is number one versus number two in PFF ELO rankings, and then the Box Packers is three versus four. Yeah. So the top four ranked teams there you go. are all remaining here. This is one versus two. The Chiefs are fifth in offense. Bu uh, bu uh, Bills are sixth. Bills are eighth in defense. Chiefs are sixteenth. So I've given the Chiefs the um, the mental advantage defensively, but our numbers are saying the Bills have the defensive advantage. I also keep coming back to last year matters too in the history of Mahomes and the Chiefs, and I think that could be a factor. So three point spread here. Where are you leaning, man? Um, I do think the Buffalo have a real, real chance in this one. I Pick like. Em. Huh? Pick them. I might. I might. I like their ability to slow down Patrick Mahomes and that offense. I also potentially like their ability even more if Patrick Mahomes is injured and therefore not 100% himself. And then I don't think Josh Allen's going to play as badly as he did either last week or the mm -hmm. last time they played. And if Josh Allen plays like the way he's played most of the season, that is one of the most difficult offenses in the league to stop. So, all right, let's pick the upset. Let's go Buffalo. Man, you started to talk me into it with this Mahomes injury stuff. I don't pick against the Chiefs, though, as a matter of practice. Hmm. It's just, I'm, I'm going to lean the Chiefs. I'm going to, somebody's going to have their legend, you know, multiplied by a thousand, though. It's either, you know, battered Mahomes <coughs> drags the Chiefs to victory. Josh Allen drags the Bills back to the Super Bowl. Well, Josh Allen chasing a half billion dollar contract. That's what you get if you, uh, if you turn your franchise into a Super Bowl winner again. He's made himself a lot of money this year, yeah. Josh Allen. Um, the other side, you know, Rodgers going for Super Bowl number two, Brady going for legend status. There's so much on the line this weekend. I love it. It's going to be great. The top four teams in the NFL. Good job, NFL. But I'm picking the Chiefs. Usually when you get to this stage, there's at least one, usually actually multiple teams where you're like, like nothing really good comes out of that team winning the Super Bowl. You know, there's no like story attached to it. It's just, eh, all right, they won. But now you just went through them. Like every one of these teams, there's a really good story to come out of it if they win. There's uh, always Mahomes, a story, Sam. There's Mahomes already a becomes a legend. Like Rodgers magnifies his, gets the second ring, which is beats Favre. 
you know, eventually. Yeah. Brady becomes Michael Jordan plus, and who's the last one? Josh Allen drags the, the Buffalo Bills to their first ever one. You know, four Super Bowls and all, all right. four of them losing. He, they get one with Josh Allen. Yeah, and, and don't forget, all offseason we talked about the Chiefs and their dynasty and all that stuff. It doesn't mean things are easy. You know, like if the Chiefs work their way into the Super it's hard Bowl here, it's, it's very difficult. And just going into this weekend, they're playing their top competitor, you know, the, the team that has the best chance of knocking them off. So should be a great weekend. We're looking forward to it. So I'm picking Packers, Chiefs, and you're picking Packers, Bills. Yep. And it's probably going to be Brady mm. winning it all. Yeah, playoff Brady. Playoff, playoff. I mean, that's the other. Like, if playoff Brady just shows up and puts the, together another legendary performance, there's so much on the line. I can't wait. How many has he been to Super Bowls? Nine. Brady's been to nine Super Bowls. So this would be ten. Nobody else has even been to the, the highest number of conference championship games. Anybody other than Brady has been to is seven. Yes. And he would be going to his tenth Super Bowl if he went. Yeah. And he's played in five wild card games. That's pretty ridiculous. Uh, Brady has been a starter. Uh, you take out 2008 when he got hurt. He's been a starter for 19 seasons in the NFL. He's, this is be his 14th conference championship game and potentially his 10th Super Bowl in 19 yeah, years. That's madness. Yes. Anyway, let's get into some offseason stuff because there's more fans than just these four teams. It's going to be a great weekend of football, but I want to discuss this ESPN article because it's good. It's timely. The PFF free agent list is out there. Go check it out, pff.com. Uh, Sam and I and... Uh, Brad Spielberger, our cap slash contract expert that we've just added to the mix this last year. We've worked hard on our free agent list. We're going to continue to add to it in the coming weeks. So ESPN had this article on the most important decision for all 32 teams. So it's essentially a guy that's going to hit free agency that they just have to make a decision on. And I think it's a really good uh, starting point, discussion point. So let's start with uh, Dak Prescott as the decision that the Cowboys have to make. I had somebody ask me, why is Dak Prescott on your list of potential free agents? It's because he's as a of now, agent. Yeah. he's technically going to be a free agent and the Dallas Cowboys have to make an official decision to sign Dak or let him walk. Yeah, and I don't think there's a bigger decision to be made than the one on Dak Prescott. I think everyone assumes that it's a slam dunk. Obviously, you pay Dak, but they haven't so far, right? And the number has only been going up for the entire time they've been negotiating from the point where they drew a line in the sand and said, this is our number, accept it, or you know, come back with a counter, the, the contract or DAX leverage has gone up and the number that he will be playing with has gone up. So if they haven't done it yet, it's not a slam dunk that they're going to do it, particularly having you know, him coming off an injury and all those other things. I, it isn't a slam dunk. They have to make this happen if they want it to happen. And I think there's a real argument that you might you you don't need to or you you might be better off going in a different direction and it's not because Dan Prescott isn't a great quarterback he is but it's because is he a transcendent quarterback that justifies the 40 plus million dollars a year you're going to have to pay him to keep him or have you just seen enough with like Andy Dalton not have you seen enough from Andy Dalton to justify, hey, getting okay quarterback play with this group of receivers is actually kind of easy, right? And we're not saying we roll into 2021 with Dalton as your starter, but the point is, if I can get him to do that with a garbage offensive line with this group of really good receivers, it's not that hard to find a guy that can play 80% of Dank Prescott without having to spend much money at all. See, I I've changed my tune on Dak over the last year plus of watching him play 
I, I always go back to there was a point after his first four seasons where he had two top tens and two times where he did rank 18th, 19th, 20th in PFF grades. Mm -hmm. And the stats were a little bit better than they, uh, than his performance would indicate. But I do think, you know, he had his best year in 2019 and then continued that into 2020 before the injury. And I know it's with that great supporting cast, but I think what you're paying for here is the, the known versus the unknown. And I always use that top eight, top 10 quarterback cutoff. And I think with Philip Rivers retiring and Breeze is gone and maybe Big Ben's gone soon, it's, it's a new top eight, right? Brady's 43. There's a new top eight to 10. And there was a point where Dak felt like he was on the outside looking in. He was similar to Wentz. He was similar to Goff. Let's be serious here. Those guys have rotated through who's been the best quarterback since they all got drafted in 2016. But I think Dak is in that top eight mix. So if you're going to get Phillip Rivers, Big Ben, uh, Andrew Luck type of production year in, year out, I think Dak is that guy. And I would pay for that. I'd pay forty million for that. I would pay for that for the known, and and I think that's what Dallas should do. And then you just say, okay, we have to do everything we can to keep the Amari Coopers and CD Lambs and Michael Gallup's around him as much as possible, and that's the way you maximize that investment. But remember, the unknown isn't as scary as it used to be. Like that was the thing: is that yeah. quarterbacks, the part of the part of this crazy quarterback money is was driven by a bunch of contracts that were given out because the prospect of the unknown was so terrifying that you threw whatever amount of money was required to keep the guy you already had right the devil you knew was so valuable compared to the one you don't that you just had to throw a hundred million dollar contract at alex smith or joe flacco or whoever it was right the the, the unknown is no longer particularly scary because absolute worst case scenario you decide late in the training camp that you know what Jarrett Stidham sucks we're gonna have to go in another direction quickly and oh Cam Newton's still sitting there on the street for a bargain basement contract and you sign him up okay he wasn't the answer anyway but my point is it's not that hard anymore to find a viable starting caliber quarterback but you the keep talking about all these guys top 10 is significant it is but so is the difference between top 10 and transcendent which is the problem the Dallas yeah. face right the different like do you ever anticipate Dak Prescott reaching a level that Deshaun Watson was on this season no okay so that is your problem because he's going to require the same contract and if not higher right because it's, it's he's signing it later so that is Dallas's problem in a nutshell they're going to have to pay an equivalent contract for something that definitely isn't the same level of play and the difference between the two is an important one because it's the difference between you being able to elevate everybody around you okay Deshaun Watson just went four and 12 so not elevate them that much but it's the difference between being able to make everything else better and when the pieces start to fall around fall apart around you you're done and that I think is significant for Dallas because is so do you pay a Deshaun Watson contract for a guy that's 80 85 percent of Deshaun Watson or do you pay like a bag of peanuts for a guy that's 85 percent of Dak Prescott Man, it's it's a fair point <laughs> but I think that the money that you save on Dak is going to be I know it's locked up in Zeke that's another issue that's that we, your problem yeah. that's a big problem but the money that you save on Dak gets you what starting linebacker starting strong safety starting got like maybe two like two other starters that you just need to be average I still think that the the opportunity cost that you miss out on 
between Dak and the next guy is, is significant enough. I, I, I'd still pay for the known because, I, look, we've discussed plenty of times here on this podcast, it's easy to find a starter. But maybe that's dwindling a little bit because do you want to roll in with, I love Jameis, but do I want to be tied to Jameis, right? Like I love him in theory as like top 32 quarterback in the world. Do I want to be the team that starts Jameis Winston? Do I want to be the team that starts Marcus Mariota or Cam Newton? Uh, do I want to be the team that, you know, Daniel Jones is a viable starter, but do I, do I want to just, Daniel Jones is my guy for the next four or five years. Do I want to be tied to them? I feel much more comfortable being tied to Dak than any of those other guys, even if I have to pay a little bit more money for it. Dallas's problem is that everything, the decisions they're making now are in irrevocably tied to mistakes they've made in the past, right? So the Zeke Elliott thing, you if you hadn't already thrown a ton of money at Zeke Elliott, this would be easier. If you had just signed Dak Prescott to a big extension in the first place and not had this protracted negotiation, you would be better off because it would be cheaper and you'd already have it done, right? Now, neither of those things are true. So you've already thrown a ton of money at Zeke. That's gone. And you have to pay Dak Prescott more than you would have had to pay if you just locked him up early and got it done. So you're faced with a different set of circumstances and the price is higher. And that's what makes it a decision to me. If, if you're just asking in abstract terms, is Dak Prescott worth a big contract extension with no other information present, I would say yes. But in the current set but of circumstances, the other mistakes, it's, yeah. I think there is a line at which Dallas should not go beyond financially. And if that line is already short of where they where the, the money needs to go, like they have to walk away. They've already sort of set that precedent. If Dak does hit the market, you've got other teams who haven't made the running back mistake. Who can afford who, that. You know, the Bears and these other teams that are just going to go all out for Dak if he actually hits the open market. Okay, a couple other decisions that I think are huge. Let's look at both two of the best receivers in the entire free agent class, Kenny Galladay and Allen Robinson. Allen Robinson, we've talked about so much about how he's never really played with a good quarterback and now is now it's his chance, you know. It's now his chance to shop around. Give me Aaron Rodgers, I'm coming to you, you know, whoever uh Deshaun Watson, it, you know, I'm coming to you even though they don't have the money in Houston if he stays it. Either way, Allen Robinson can go find a good quarterback to play with. And then Kenny Galladay in Detroit, the entire Lions receiving core is free agents from Kenny Galladay to Marvin Jones to Danny Amendola. It feels like they at least need to try to lock Galladay up, not let him hit the market. Whereas I think the Bears, they might just be past their time with 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 Allen Robinson. With Detroit, I think it, it comes down to what they are going to do with Matthew Stafford. So Dan Campbell signs as head coach, six-year deal which by the way is like the life jackpot, right? Nobody has any idea if Dan Campbell's a good head coach, but he's, he's got guaranteed money for six years. Yeah. He could be a disaster, get fired after 12 months and be laughing to the bank for the next five years, just feet up, chilling on the, the beach. But really he's, is. He's, he's a competitor, he doesn't want to do that. Really is goals. Anyway, if the, the, my point with that is six-year deal suggests they think that this is a, a project. This is not a quick fix. This is a potential rebuild, tear down, have some time committed to this at which point that gives you the flexibility to say you know what Matthew Stafford's time here might be coming to an end we're going to go in a different direction at quarterback we're going to find a new guy and rebuild this thing from the ground up I think if you're keeping Stafford 
Kenny Galladay is an absolute must because that offense is crippled when he's not there. Like, it's huge. If you're going in a different direction, you've got time to find the quarterback and then build a receiving group around him. The tricky part, though, and um, my friend Mike Tannenbaum uses this phrase, and I hope I don't completely ruin it, this phrase that Parcells used to say, Bill Parcells, you have to win now. Like, when you take over a team, you have to win now so you can win tomorrow. And And it is that hybrid approach of, like, find remember remember parcells teams historically they would make a quick turnaround Mm -hmm. and it's because he would get veterans in there and even if they're not part of the six-year plan they're part of the two-year plan and it's almost like you need to get that vote of confidence you need to get the organization moving in the right way to win now so that yes three four five years ago from now okay now you can make your your run at a title right so i think there's this element of you can't just let everybody walk you in you have no receivers you don't want to go into next year with absolutely nobody to throw to I don't think you want to just move on from Matthew Stafford immediately so I think there's going to be some transitional time and Stafford plus Galladay seem like they should be a part of that so I would bring Galladay back because he could be a part of the win tomorrow and win four years from now as well I think with Allen Robinson though the Bears should try to keep him I just think he's he's I think he's checked out of Chicago oh he definitely wants out um, but like they could franchise him, right? Like yeah. <laughs> they can keep him if they want to piss him off even more. Yeah. Uh, I, by the way, I think the bears are making based off the press conferences and where, you know, Nagy is and just the whole thing, the whole thing. Um, I think they're making a, trying to make a big move at quarterback. They're going to yeah, be calling around trying that. to make what a is huge it? predict one, call it out. Now, what, what are the bears doing to quarterback? What's their splash play? I mean, if Dak hit the open market, they're going all in there. I think they might call the Raiders for a Derek Carr. That's your splash play at quarterback, Derek Carr. Have you seen the Chicago Bears quarterbacks for the last 30 years? Yes. That's a massive splash in Chicago, yes. But the point is not to the point is not to make a splash relative to the ineptitude you've had. It's it is make, a little bit. It it's is to make a splash overall. No, it it's hey, Derek Carr was a top ten quarterback last year. He's got two top 10 finishes in PFF grades in his history mm-hmm. and one borderline. It's like getting back to the glory days of Eric Kramer in the mid-90s. God. That's a splash play for the Bears. Okay. Okay. When you go from Trubisky and Foles to a Derek Carr, it absolutely is. But that's the type of thing I think they're going to be looking at. Let me think of what else. Gardner Minshew. No. Um, let's go to some other decisions. Uh, right here down the street, Carl Lawson, Cincinnati Bengals. He's hitting the open market, as is William Jackson the third. Mm. But both of those guys are two guys came in together or came in right around the same time, and um, two of the better players on a bad Bengals team here. It feels like they got to at least keep one of them. And Lawson's one of those guys. He's only got like 23, 24 career sacks. He's the best pass rusher on the market by our grades yeah. over the last few years. And on the open market, sacks get overpaid for every single year bud dupree's gonna get overpaid by you know for for sack totals and a few other guys are too carl lawson could be the steal of free agency and that's why i think the bengals should do what they can to keep him i am inclined to agree i also think that like you could just deploy this guy as you know a genuine situational pass rusher just tell him forget the run i don't care don't care at all make him into yannick and right yeah do not care if you defend the run whatsoever just go after the passer and i think he might be a better pass rusher than yannick and if that's all you're asking to do but it's almost like they treat him a little bit like um new england does with uh what's the guy's name dietrich wise yeah yeah there you go dietrich wise who 
so bad as a run defender you can't do that in Bill Belichick's system so you just get marginalized and never play but the Bengals feel like they do that with Carl Lawson a little bit as well it's like but you don't a you don't even run what Belichick does and b you can't really be that picky you know beggars can't be choosers and right now you've got a little pot out begging for coins right you actually have a guy that can do some damage unleash him let him go yeah I would I would try to hold on to him if I'm the Bengals um another big name is Justin Simmons one of the best safeties in the NFL over the last couple years for the Broncos let's talk two safeties Justin Simmons and Marcus May there are they're part of our top five safeties hitting free agency you've got Marcus Williams from the Saints uh John Johnson from the Rams and Anthony Harris from the Vikings they're all different different styles but Marcus May for the Jets Justin Simmons with the Broncos they franchised Simmons last year I think they definitely want to bring him back too with especially in Fangio's system with how much they rely on good safety play Simmons has been just fantastic the last couple years yeah I think he has he's really good in that role he's really good um he's more active than a free safety has any right to be I think he should absolutely be extended long term the Marcus May one is more interesting though because the Jets are still in this rebuild mode Marcus May obviously is a really talented player but you you shipped off Jamal Adams which I think was the right move for the for a first rounder yeah two right they got two first rounders from or did I make that up what did they get anyway put me on the spot sorry they got more than enough back for Jamal Adams to make it a worthwhile deal right two even first rounders yeah yeah see you? even though he's wow. a talented playmaker Lots Seahawks right it just <laughs> looks worse and worse even though he's a talented playmaker it makes sense to ship a guy like that off for two first round picks but because you've already done that and you have Marcus May now stepped into that role did a good job you're essentially left with the same question albeit without the draft capital involved is he's a safety is a safety ever impactful enough for you to pay the giant amount of money to particularly when you're not like you're not one safety piece away from a Super Bowl right you're in the middle of a rebuild is it worth committing a monster contract to Marcus May or should you just say thanks for the time good luck in the future you're not a safety away however Marcus May was one of the reasons why the Jamal Adams trade yes. happened right because the the Jets when you when you do, when we do our team needs pieces here Jets what do you need o-line receivers but mostly receivers and corners right the receivers and corners you got to be able to cover if you take another piece out of that secondary it just okay now you need a safety it certainly well. it isn't adds, helping it adds to the need list yeah. and I, I think you know win now so you can win tomorrow theory at least keep some good players and I think May is one of them and again I think he's done it in multiple roles he's played Jamal Adams role he's played straight up free safety he's done it all um and in you know Robert Sala's defense there honestly he could play either the true single high free safety role or more of the box safety in their cover three heavy attack so I would I would lean toward keeping May as as much as I could if I'm the Jets because they need at least some defensive pieces yeah I think the only problem is that it's going to cost a lot of money to do it it's not you know I, yeah I get it abstract terms yeah absolutely keep a guy like Marcus May he's a really good player and if you ship him off you've got to replace him but if you're in this rebuild world of trying to allocate, when you're rebuilding, one of the things you have to deal with that some other teams don't really is you have a sort of fresh attack at how to construct a roster from the ground up and therefore where the resources should go. And all of the data essentially would say the resources shouldn't go to a safety. So even but if you're in a, a situation now where he's one of your best players, that's not the situation you want to be in. So you shouldn't you shouldn't head down that road yeah. with the contract but in a sala defense 
which isn't the it's not just hey we play cover three every single time but it's still a big part of their defense where you got to have the true free and a true strong all of those defenses have excelled when they have as we talked to dan quinn the other day those prototypes by the way if you're a cowboys fan listen to the dan quinn interview from monday i think you very insightful for your new defensive coordinator they do need safeties you know in that defense um by the way as a strategy drafting a jamal adams getting a couple years of play out of him and then flipping him for two first rounders getting a khalil mack getting a few years out of him and flipping him for multiple first rounders i would do that every single time i would trade all of my non-quarterback stars <laughs> for two or three first rounders every time because their impact wouldn't trade them all but i'd trade a lot of them i'd trade a lot of them all the almost all of the non-quarterback stars maybe not receivers and corners but the not that the people the players that the rest of the league maybe values more than they should in relation to wins yeah i would but that's a hard thing to flip quantify them. my thing would be there's a certain degree of superstar that i would just never trade away because it's too hard to replace those guys and the draft is still such a crapshoot that you can easily lose out even though you won the trade on paper right the problem is can you correctly draw the line between those guys and the guys that look like that for a brief period of time but aren't really just so look, look really quick this might be a daily topic as well Khalil Mack and Jamal Adams trade at the time you look at it like wow Bears you yeah. just got Khalil Mack this is great but we also saw them peak with a really nice 2018 season and Khalil Mack can only help you so much Jamal Adams trade for what Seattle did this offseason, it was like, wow, they added, they've actually got good corners now. You add Jamal Adams to the mix. The offense is cooking because Russ is cooking. And now it's like, well, Seattle fell short. They lost in the wild card round. All right, where, where are the holes on the roster? Uh-oh, we don't have a first rounder this year. Uh-oh, we don't have a first rounder next year. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Bears have been dealing with. They had a great 2018 season, and then they don't have a first round pick for two straight years to actually improve their team. The Bears... It's like the same story. Every It's at a great emotionally at first, and then before you know it, it's like, whoa, how are we going to actually get better? The Khalil Mack trade is the rare lose-lose trade. You, you, sometimes you get a win-win. Both teams won. They, they made out of it well. I think the Bears and the Raiders both lost. Chicago got Khalil Mack and traded away a bunch of stuff and it hasn't done them any good. And the Raiders won the trade on paper, got a ton back, drafted poorly. and have turned it into nothing. Yeah. Like, neither team made out well from that trade. I think the Jets absolutely won the Jamal Adams trade. They got two first-round picks for a guy who, as good as he is, is a safety and can't make that big of an impact on, on your wins. So that's 100% on board of that. I'm just saying that... There's nothing, there's no trade you could give me to make me trade away a Randy Moss or... Oh, I agree with that. I yeah. would never trade, I don't think I would ever trade away an Aaron Donald. I don't think you can throw enough at me for me to be interested in trading away an Aaron Donald. No, transcendent players. Yes. This or, is my point. or high, val high value receivers right. and corners. But my point to. is, can you correctly identify a transcendent player versus a player that looks like it for a while and isn't? Yeah, like... Like I said, the Panthers should have traded Christian McCaffrey when his value was crazy high after year two. And what does that look like right now? Yeah, no kidding. They should have. All right, one more guy to talk about. Trent Williams, San Francisco 49ers. What a fascinating career Trent Williams has had. He just finished the season as our top-graded offensive tackle for the third time in history. Having and, not really played for a while. Yeah, after after not playing for a long time. Which, and by the way, add him to the, like the mental tally of guys that took some time away from the game, came back. Like the, the sabbatical. You've been talking about this for a while. 
right? Guys that take time. It seems like offensive, like Richie Incognito. Just make sure I remember, because the yeah. next time that comes up, I'll forget Trent Williams did it. Richie Incognito, Trent Williams. Marshawn Lynch did it, but he didn't look good coming back. No. Yeah, some guys did, though. Anyway, Trent Williams has been our top-graded offensive tackle in 2013, 2016, and now 2020. So grab him in four years, and he'll be the best tackle <laughs> in the NFL. But it's a big decision. I thought the Niners did great to pick him up this sure. offseason for a couple mid-round picks. Um, but now they have a decision to make as far as bringing him back. You don't often um, re- you don't often replace one of the greatest players in your franchise's history, Joe Staley, a guy who yeah, he's probably not a Hall of Famer, but Ring of Honor, right? 49ers Ring of Honor player. Joe Staley, that kind of caliber career. You don't replace a guy like that and um, easily. It's, it's usually a problem. It usually becomes an issue the next year. The 49ers not only replaced him, not only didn't skip a beat, but actually upgraded at the position by having the year that Trent Williams just had. It's yeah. nuts. Really incredible. Um, and like he was good in pass protection, really good in pass protection, but run blocking, he was like stealing people's souls all season long. And this is an offense that likes to do that. He's well-suited for this offense as well as just being an important piece of the puzzle. I know he's getting on in years, but I would really be trying to bring him back if I'm the 49ers. He's 32 years old. He'll be 32 you know, at the start of next season, or 33 at the start of next season. We have seen tackles age well. I think if you can get him on a three-year deal. I know we, Anthony Costanzo just retired, and, and if a guy does hit the wall and retire for whatever reason, it does put you in a massive hole, but I would – do what I could if I'm the Niners to lock him up. I mean, we're you know, Whitworth is, what, 38 and still going strong. Jason Peters played well up until 38 and then hit a, an injury wall. I, I would say the concern with Williams is that he has dealt with a series of niggling injuries for a while. Like, he's he's been banged up for a long time. So if it is a case of the, the older you get as an offensive lineman, the more the cumulative weight of injuries just starts to grind on you then yeah, maybe he'll, he will hit a wall pretty quickly and, and fall off. But if it's a case of like, you know, those guys just go on forever these days into their late 30s, and you've got like five more years of elite play out of Trent. And Mike McGlinchey. Yes. Two guys in their late 30s. <laughs> One or two for Mike. Um, the argument against Trent Williams, though, a lot of tackles going to be drafted in the first couple rounds next year. Sure. Shanahan's system has done a really good job of developing tackles, putting them in position to succeed, and when they find their type of you know, zone blocking tackle. They usually do have success in that system, but definitely a decision for the Niners to make. So as always, a lot of free agent discussion. If you're wondering about our Philip Rivers take, he did retire. Is he a Hall of Famer? It's all part of the PFF Daily. If you're loving our podcast here, you're going to love the Daily just as much. So go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. Search PFF NFL Daily. Subscribe, listen. We appreciate everybody that's already moved over there. It's not millions and millions yet, but it's like hundreds of thousands mm. that are listening. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate that. It's not really that much, guys. I'm just kidding. But we appreciate the support. So that'll do it for us today. Championship weekend. Everybody enjoy the football this weekend. We'll be back Monday reviewing all the games and a lot more free agency offseason talk. Actually, on Monday, I got a mock draft coming out. Oh, yeah? PFF.com. So you can dissect my mock draft. We'll get into some draft discussion. Worst mock ever. Senior Bowl practices next week the senior bowl game is a week from this saturday all sorts of off-season fun picking it up as we go here so enjoy the football we'll see you guys on monday